The evolution of blast design will take us into the future with multivariate blast design leading the way. At some point this will be combined with artificial intelligence systems and every single day gather more site-specific data. It'll pull in all of the information developed at that mine site on how each blast is performed and the performance results of that and it'll suggest updates and new blast designs that will be done on a day-to-day -day basis as we fine-tune that model. This will be the next major step in mine-to-mill optimization for truly optimizing how a blast is completed and how that blast will perform. Academyblasting.tv Welcome back everybody to academyblasting.tv. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Konya, and it's a pleasure to have you along today as we go into the final episode of this podcast series on the future of drilling and blasting. Today we're going to be talking about one of my favorite topics, and that is blast design. And this is because the way you design a blast can completely change the performance of all of your drilling and loading and so this is one of the most important principles uh, in that entire overall drilling and blasting process. We've come a long way since 1627 and today we have new techniques that are just being released to market in the form of uh, topics such as multivariate blast design or the specific approach and factor blast design which are showing dramatic improvements. I'll, I'll give you some of the details on these on projects where we've conducted this multivariate blast design at the exact same powder factor, at the exact same drill diameter, at the exact same cost, we've reduced oversize to less than 10% of the previous results. We've changed the violence factor of blasts from a 4 to a 0. We've saved mines millions of dollars without adding any additional drill and blast cost in the performance of their blast solely by using these new techniques that are on the marketplace today. But before we get into those, we need to have a good understanding of the history of blast design. And so let's go back to 1627, when those Hungarian miners first went underground to fire that first blast. On that fateful day, history changed for the mining industry, and we began to use explosives and chemicals to break rock instead of just pure manpower to chip it away. Now, at this time, we don't necessarily have great records on how the engineers went about conducting the blast design processes. We do have some records looking at what they were doing and how they actually achieved those blasts, but the design parameters are sort of lost to history. However, we know that on this day, the Hungarian Mining Tribunal watched that blast fire, and they were amazed by the performance of it and the results that uh, the blast actually produced. And they very quickly wanted to expand this throughout Hungary because Hungary was known as a mining country at this time. Without a set, well, easy established means to do this, the mining tribunal began looking at something that today we would call powder factor. And basically it was how much explosive these mines used for how many tons of rock they produced. Now, you have to understand, back at this time, most of the mines were set up in similar ways. This was in a small region where the rock did not significantly vary. They were targeting things like gold and copper and iron. And they developed what we would call powder factor for each of these different rocks. And then they would spread this out to all the different mine sites in Hungary in order to gain a competitive advantage in the mining marketplace. Now, at this time, this powder factor 
was known not to necessarily be the best method of design. And some of the uh, documents indicate that this wasn't necessarily the deciding design factor at the time. What it was was an introductory tool that a mine could use to get in the right ballpark because you have to think at this time we were looking at increases to mine productivity by 10 times that of fire setting or uh, using a pick or some other means of breaking that material. And so it really wasn't focusing on how do we get the best performance, how do we get the most economical blasting, how do we get you know the best results possible for the money we put in. It was based upon how do we actually take this new technology of blasting and spread it throughout all of our different uh, mine sites. Now by the late 1600s, we already see alternative design methodologies being put together. And these were sort of advanced and developed uh, independently, and we'll talk about them, but let's stay focused on powder factor for a minute because it's a term we often hear in the industry still today, and it originated sometime in the mid-1600s, or the general concept of powder factor originated in the mid-1600s. Now, we are not exactly sure what happened, but at some point powder factor was completely eliminated from the explosive engineer, the blaster's toolbox. And by the 1840s, we see relatively few, if any, references left to powder factor, especially as a design tool. It almost completely fell out of favor. And as systems changed, as the technology advanced, as we spread this around the world, uh, powder factor was not being used on a widespread basis anymore. And we'll talk about what took its place here later in this episode. However, sometime in the 1900s, powder factor came back. And it's important to understand why it came back. At, at this time, there was a significant amount of research being done on shockwaves, specifically for the military and with the advent of new weapon systems and nuclear technologies. Shockwaves were on everybody's mind. And it's true, in the military application, shockwaves do produce significant results, and it's one of the major breakage mechanisms the military relies on. And what happened back in the 1900s was people began to talk about shockwaves in rock blasting. And when this came about, there was a major problem, and it was that shockwaves couldn't be used to design blasts. But the basic principle of shockwaves led researchers to believe that if that was the case, then powder factor would be the primary tool for determining the breakage that results from a blast, right? Because a shockwave is basically dependent on how much explosive you have and how much material you have. And so we could use these tools then of powder factor, which were similar in nature, to design blasts with. And powder factor came back into play. And this is what reintroduced powder factor. But it was not without a fight. There were several people, even at the time that it was being reintroduced, that said this was a poor theory for design. And let's look at the reason that powder factor at this time was criticized heavily. Well, one of the reasons is, even at the time, there was many researchers that showed that shockwaves had no influence in rock blasting. And so if shockwaves have no influence, then powder factor doesn't really give us a great tool for the design. At the same time, though, there were many people that were actually trying to blast with these powder factor theories. And one of the major problems is, let's say you're looking at a surface blast. The powder for that factor for that could range anywhere from 0.5 all the way up to 2 pounds per cubic yard. 
And that's a very large range, and we really have no better indication. There's not necessarily a set powder factor for rock type or rock structure. There's no real design criteria to go into that. And so it ends up being a tool that relies heavily on past experience at that specific site in that specific rock type with a set pattern because as soon as we change that pattern the powder factor could dramatically change let's say we go to a double benching method we know that powder factor can't necessarily extrapolate our blast design to that versus a single bench because things rapidly change and so powder fa factor then never really became this tool that gave blasters a lot of flexibility it sort of became a methodology that could be used if you knew the rock type, the rock structure, the blast pattern, the bench height, all those different variables. If they were defined, then your experience could give you a general range of powder factors that was maybe plus or minus 0.1 or 0.2 pounds per cubic yard. That's still a fairly large spread, but again, that requires on a lot of assumptions being made. Now, let's take a look just at some of the research that was done with powder factor. We had one very famous researcher... Russian researcher named Kuznetsov. And Kuznetsov's famous now for being part of the development of the Kuz-Ram fragmentation model we use in drilling and blasting. But what Kuznetsov did was he ran about a 10-year-long study, and he blasted all different types of rock, both in the laboratory and full scale. He'd sieve full blasts, he'd sieve the laboratory results to look at what the fragmentation size was from blasting. Now, at the time, Kuznetsov was a huge proponent of powder factor. He thought that that was the design methodology. And his major goal and the way he got funding from the Russian government was he was trying to determine the exact powder factor that you could use in any rock type. He was basically trying to advance this theory of powder factor to a full-fledged design. Well, Kuznetsov ran into some problems. And the biggest was that powder factor didn't matter. All of the research he did showed that powder factor didn't really have a major contribution to the fragmentation that was a result of a blast. There were other design tools that were much more important. For example, the actual size and orientation of the charge, the length, the diameter, the burden, the spacing. These were all much more important factors than the powder factor. And so at the end of his study, Kuznetsov basically put something together that said a variation of powder factor could be used to determine the average size of rock, but it was pretty ineffective for any predictions outside of that. So powder factor did not correlate to fragmentation. Later, Professor Dick Ash went and looked at powder factor in his PhD study. And as he was going through this, he did a very simple experiment in burying some charges and firing them off of different axes. Or what basically he looked at was if you have a charge that is drilled down into a solid bed of rock and it's vertically oriented, so the sides are having an infinite burden on them and the top is facing the top. It's at a 90 degree angle. That charge will result in what we now call radial fracturing but it results in very little, if any, real fragmentation. You could not dig the rock afterwards. But if you took the same charge and put it on a 45-degree angle where the side of the charge now faced the surface to some extent, you'd blast out an entire crater there with the same powder factor just by changing that charge orientation. And again, this went to tell us that 
you know, powder factor wasn't the end all be all tool, right? Because the, the way we change the orientation or the angle of the charge also has a major impact on the fragmentation and the results of the blast. Later, there was research that went on in the military looking at the effects of the geometry of the charge. For example, they used the term the length of the charge divided by the diameter of the charge. And they found the same thing. The charge orientation was important. And it was not necessarily just a general end-all, be-all powder factor, but the way that we change the orientation of the charge and its length to its diameter also have major influences in explosives engineering. Well, eventually, in the mid to late 1960s, Dr. Calvin Konya went on to define the term called stiffness ratio. And stiffness ratio was a topic that was known about since the early 1800s, but it wasn't defined as stiffness ratio. Basically, in the 1800s, writers at the time on blasting would say that as you had a low bench, you lost control of the blast, and with a high bench, you could gain control or better control of that blast. In the late 1800s, they went on to define this as a uh, bench that was somewhere around two times the burden. Below that was considered uncontrollable, and above that, the blaster could somewhat control the results. And that's about as far as the research got until Calvin Konya went on to define stiffness ratio. Now, stiffness ratio is basically the bench height divided by the burden. And if we were civil engineers, we may talk about this as slenderness ratio of columns or beams because there's some correlation between the two. But what stiffness ratio proved at the end of the day was that powder factor was a completely ineffective tool for design because the spacing of your blast holes was inherently tied to the stiffness ratio of the blast. And based on our timing, our delay sequences, our stiffness ratio, we could change the spacing of the blast. And what we found was powder factor greatly varied based on these variables. And that sort of put the last nail in the coffin to powder factor. And since then, it's been falling out of favor in the industry. And today, there's very few people that are still widely using powder factor as a full-fledged design approach. Some are using it as a secondary check. And many still use it as an economic tool because that's probably what powder factor is the best for. It's, it's a way we can quickly compare the cost of two different blasts on a general uh, price basis, right? Because we know the the cost per pound of explosive and we can run a quick costing there. And if we use this with an initiator factor and a drilling factor, we can very quickly uh, compare the cost between, let's say, two blast patterns. But none of those are design tools. So the question then becomes, how do we actually go about designing a blast? Well, somewhere between 1670 and 1830, powder factor was sort of ruled out. And what came to play next was a term called cratering or cratering theory. Now we know if we put a charge into a solid mass of rock with no free face, that we'll often end up with a crater forming on the surface. This is, for example, what the military does quite frequently. They blast craters. Now in the mining and construction industry, we needed to be more economic, let's say. And we couldn't rely solely on craters. And so what came about wasn't necessarily just straight cratering theory, but what was called dual cratering theory. 
And what this said was you'd place a charge where the center point was about equal distant from the free face and from the top of the bench. So we relied on very short benches here. And when we'd place this charge in this orientation, we'd get a crater breaking out to the free face and a crater breaking out to the surface. You have to understand, though, this was also a convention of the general time because during this period, we were still blasting with black powder. And drilling techniques weren't the greatest. They still were uh, heavily labor-intensive and required manned operation of drills. And so this led to short boreholes being completed, and the use of black powder led to short charges. And the reason is, is black powder deflagrates. It doesn't detonate. It burns slowly. And what was found is if you use black powder in a length greater than about 12 times the diameter, we'd start to have breakage occur with that rock before the all of that black powder has burned. And in essence, anything over 12 times the diameter did not majorly contribute to the breakage process. So this meant we had short holes and very short charges. And in this regard, it acted almost as a point source. So this dual cratering theory worked, and we can say it worked well because it was used for probably 100, 150 years uh, throughout the world. However, things started to change. Somewhere between 1830 and the 1870s, authors started to propose new theories. None of them were widely adopted, and dual cratering theory sort of stuck around. But as we developed into the 1880s and beyond, dynamite started coming into play, and boreholes could be drilled longer. Now, dynamite was a unique explosive because it did detonate, and now we could use it in large quantities. We could pressurize the borehole all at one time, and when this dynamite pressurized the borehole, it resulted in the ability to use longer length charges. Combine this with the advancements in drilling, and now we could rely on a long charge, a long slender charge. And it was quickly realized that dual cratering theory didn't work anymore because we weren't relying on it. It worked for the time because it was truly what was being completed. But once dynamite came about, there was more economical ways of blasting, and that was with long benches breaking off the side of the charge using that borehole effect. The first real all-encompassing design methodology was then introduced by Daw and Daw in the 1890s, and this was termed shear theory. Now, shear theory was a unique design approach, and basically what it stated was that when this charge broke, we get a large force that pushes the rock in front, and this causes shear planes to occur, and the rock tumbles out and breaks apart as it falls. And they weren't entirely wrong. We know that's not the actual mechanism of breakage, but they were very close to what they were working with. And Daw and Daw developed what they called the line of resistance, or what today would be known as the burden of the blast. The reason this was a popular design approach is because it used that borehole effect, and uh, it's unknown exactly how long or how widespread this theory was, but it seems to come up in the literature up until the 1930s or 1940s. And in the 1940s, everything changed. As new weapon systems began being introduced and the military started putting uh, large amounts of funding into the field of explosives engineering, national laboratories were set up, a sort of worldwide uh, emphasis on explosives came to light. 
And the major impact, at least from, let's say, a military perspective, was in weapon systems. And how do weapon systems function? Well, the shockwave is a major component of that system. So shockwave research was abundant. And in order to get research funding, many researchers looked towards this shockwave theory. So the question then became, could the principles we were learning and discovering under shockwaves also be applied to rock blasting? And this is where sort of this theory began taking light. We had a researcher named Livingston that worked out of Colorado School of Mines, and he developed much of the introduction to shockwave theory. Uh, but even Livingston stated that the shockwave theory was probably a small part, 10 to 30% of the total breakage from the explosive charge. Then one of his students, Dr. Hino, came about and decided he was going to reinvent shockwave theories in the late 1940s and early 1950s. And Hino put together a new methodology for shockwave breakage. Now, in Hino's own work, he said the maximum breakage from shockwaves was 50% of the breakage of the actual uh, explosive. But Hino's work was inherently flawed. There's almost every uh, way you look at it, there's major flaws to it. And this led to a dramatic overemphasis in shockwaves. And Hino's work was then picked up by the U.S. Bureau of Mines and expanded with the same mathematics and uh, sort of tried to be proven out. There was one major problem, though. Shockwave theory could never be used for real blast design. It, it wasn't an effective tool for designing a blast, and blasters sure didn't use it. So what shockwave theorists decided to do was they resurrected the cratering theory from the 1600s and powder factor from the 1600s. And as we've already mentioned, this is because powder factor sort of encompasses some of these uh, general theories with shockwaves, so much explosive for so much material. The problem was still even resurrecting these and trying to combine them with shockwave theories led to no realistic blast design approaches. And so all of these equations back from these shockwave theories have numerous fudge factors. Some of them only have two or three, others have 10, 15. And what would happen is blast consultants at the time would have to go out to your site and spend three to six months doing a large variety of testing. The research at this time shows that this, this testing was not trivial. They spent months and months on end changing approaches to the blast design until they got somewhat decent results and then they could develop the fudge factors for that specific design. With all these fudge factors it's safe to assume that this is not ever really a realistic blast design theory and because of this it started falling out of favor and in the early 1960s we had a, a large amount of evidence that proved that shockwaves really didn't have an impact in the blasting process. We had these breakage theories that didn't really suit what was happening. We had new explosives coming out with ANFOs and slurries that utilized a tremendous amount of gas pressure but had very little shock components to them at all, especially compared to something like dynamite. And the industry was sort of in turmoil. Where do we go from here? That was the big question on everybody's minds. And we had some major pioneers then that answered the call to research where we went when all of our previous theories failed. I hope you're enjoying this podcast episode of academyblasting.tv. And as we continue talking about blast design, if you're ever looking to gain more knowledge about the blasting industry, including drilling, explosives, initiation systems, blasting safety, and of course, blast design, 
make sure you check out academyblasting.com. It's the major source for education in the explosives engineering field with both online and in-person seminars all around the world on explosives engineering and specifically drilling and blasting. So remember to head over to academyblasting.com to get all of your educational needs in this industry, including blasters licensing hours for various states in the U.S. Now we'll get back to the show. As blast design began progressing into the 1960s, researchers began asking a major question. How does the explosive actually break the rock in the blast? And this was sort of a thought on everybody's mind because when we developed the next iteration of blast design principles, we wanted to do it from a good understanding of what is actually happening in the field. And in the early 1960s, this led Langfors and the Swedish Daytonic Institute down a route to define what we call today as radial fracturing. Now, what Langfors and, and his group looked at was when we had an explosive detonate in a borehole, we had a few things happen, one of which is springing, so the hole actually gets larger in diameter. And this was used widely at the time to actually drill smaller diameter holes and then spring them to larger diameters for actual blast loading. But the major impact of this was also that we developed fractures radiating out from the hole. Now, if we have no burden on that hole, those fractures go in a 360-degree arc. And when they progress out into the rock mass, what we start to see is five to seven major radial fractures occurring, and the rest sort of die out at short intervals around the hole, uh, typically to about two times the hole diameter. And then we have five to seven major fractures occur, and this is likely due to the, just the pure geometric constraints on these fractures. Basically, we can't have more than seven or because as they fracture, as those planes open up, the other fractures start to close and get more pressure on the ends of them, stopping fractures from occurring. So Langfors began to define this, and from this methodology, Langfors started to develop a base approach to blast design because the other thing that he noted and, and that several other researchers since have noted is that as you put a burden onto the borehole, the radial fractures reorient themselves. They stop going equal dimensions all around the hole, and you start to see major fractures moving towards the free face with significantly smaller fractures behind the hole. And this was an important concept at the time, and still is today. But Langfors then began looking at, okay, how do these fractures occur, and, and what do we need to get them to occur? One of the other things that he noted was it depended, these fractures and their progression depended on the angle of breakage. And so when we had a bench that had a 90 degree angle, like we do in most mining and construction projects, the hardest part of that bench to break, the most resistance to these fractures was the bottom. And so Langfors went on to develop a bottom load versus a top load of these charges and defined that the bottom load had to be heavier and based some of his initial burden design on these radial fractures occurring. Well, as time progressed, Dr. Dick Ash also went on to quantify breakage off the side of the charges, as we've previously mentioned, and he looked into this to develop sort of some of the criteria that went into how the geometry of the charge affected the actual breakage process. And him and Dr. Calvin Konya then began to work together on this problem, both of them at the Missouri School of Mines, 
or the University of Missouri Rollo, which was uh, later called after a name change. And they went on to work and develop sort of some of these principles. And later in the late 1960s, Dr. Calvin Konya published his uh, thesis work on these principles and what he called stiffness ratio. And stiffness ratio was looking at how these radio cracks propagated based on different sizes of the chart. So it wasn't just a resistance versus explosive effect. It was also based on the charge geometry. And what Dr. Konya found was that as the charge, uh, the stiffness ratio was above four. So the bench height was four times the burden of the bench. The bench broke better and had less negative results. And at this point, the spacing could dramatically change. And this had a lot to do with the interaction of boreholes next to each other. This had to do with the uh, actual radial fracturing networks that were moving through. The other thing that affected these processes was the hole-to-hole -hole timing. And it's something that was known in the industry for a while. If we fire holes instantaneously in a row, we get worse fragmentation overall, but we get more uh, throw or face movement. And if we fire them delayed, we get better fragmentation, but less face movement occurring. And what Dr. Konya found is not only was that true, but based on the hole-to-hole -hole delay, we could also change our spacing. Where, for example, if we had instantaneous uh, holes delayed, so all the holes in the row fired together, we could spread our spacing out sometimes to 50% or more of a delayed shot. Now, let's say we had a 25 millisecond delay between holes. We could then discover what that actual spacing needed to be based on whatever our stiffness ratio was. And so we sort of started to define these as these general uh, overarching principles with charge geometry and radial cracking. As the research continued, though, Dr. Konya started looking into what was termed as flexural failure and started really to define some of this work, which his work coincided with some of Langford's updated work on this, and both groups began to work independently and came to similar conclusions. It wasn't just the radial cracking. After the radial cracking occurred, there was a pause in time. You see, radial cracking didn't move the face, but what did move the face is after those cracks formed and they started to open up, the gases would penetrate into those fractures and actually cause the face to move forward and throw. Now, this was sort of an advancement on that Daw and Daw shear theory, right? Because Daw and Daw said we'd push that rock forward, and that's not actually the case. But in some regards, it's not necessarily 100% wrong. And this is because these the gases would penetrate into these fractures, so it wouldn't be the gases in the borehole pushing the face but it would be the gases in a network of fractures that are moving through the rock, pushing that face forward. This resulted in tension forming into the face, and this concluded in a final push of that face and the majority of the fragmentation in the blast. Now, this work was expanded, and in the 1980s, Pierre Anders Pearson, who invented the non-electric detonator, also began working uh, on looking at this flexural failure theory and trying to define when it occurred and what type of pressurization we, we saw in the fractures. Now, as of recently, in the about 2018-2019, 
uh, we put forward a new theory on how these radial fractures actually occurred, and it's through the theory of hoop stress fields, and we found this to be extremely accurate. By taking real blast design variables, we can now actually predict these radial fracturing networks, and then using the research developed by Konya, Langfors, and Pierre Anders Pearson in the 1980s and 1990s, we can then model this flexural failure to get a full all-encompassing approach for how a blast breaks rock. Now we have a general understanding of the breakage process, but that still begs the question, how do we design with this? Well, when some of these features began to come about, such as radial fracturing in the 1960s, Professor Ash put together a design approach known as K-factor design. And this was based on this theory that if radial fractures were occurring in equal distances from a charge, then all we needed to do was scale certain design variables, such as the burden, based on that borehole diameter, and we'd achieve radial fracturing to the free face. With lack of a full-fledged theory, what Dr. Ash did was he went and he took a survey of over 100 different mine sites in the middle of the U.S. and put together average values. And so we got ranges then. For ANFO, use 24 times the borehole diameter. For emulsions, use 30 times the borehole diameter. And some of these different uh, relationships for unique situations. And Dr. Ash developed these as K-factor design where the K-factor then varied based on the specific situation that you were using. And again, this was based on that initial radial fracturing theory. Well, as time progressed and new theories like flexural failure came out, work needed to be done. And so Dr. Calvin Konya took on uh, Dr. Ash's work and began developing what is now known as independent variable design. And most notably, he developed what's now known as the Konya Independent Variable Design Approach. And this design approach is today used by the majority of the industry. Uh, it's what most of the major powder manufacturers utilize. It's what uh, most of the websites and softwares that give general uh, introductions to blast design use. And it's been independently verified all around the world in all different design settings. And it gives us a good result for a typical first pass blast design. Now, what this relies on is some of these actual principles, such as stiffness ratio, the flexural failure, what our charge diameter is, what our explosive is, what our rock type and rock structure are. And we can combine all of these to get all of our general design principles. And this gets us very close to a optimized solution. It gets us in the ballpark. And from there, we can make minor tweaks then. And this is the design approach that's been used worldwide since the 1970s, this independent variable design and uh, more specifically that Konya method of it. But in 2015, uh, my group started working and, and possibly other groups started working on new design approaches. And what our group was focusing on was what we called a multivariate design approach. And this is a completely new design philosophy for blasting because we know, for example, that all of the variables we choose in a blast affect each and every variable then designed. Now, the independent design approach focuses on a system where every single variable is designed independently. So we design our burden based on our borehole diameter. We design our spacing based on our stiffness, general considerations of delay sequencing, and our burden. We design our stemming based on our burden. We design our subdural based on our burden. 
That's how that general independent variable design approach works. And what you can find is in almost all cases, you could work that design philosophy back to the actual diameter of the explosive. Now, that gets us in the ballpark, but we know that that's not the whole piece of the story. For example, our spacing and row-to-row -row timing dramatically impact the amount of stemming we need on a shot to contain all of the explosive energy. But you won't find that relationship in independent variable design. We also know things such as the hole-to-hole uh, -hole timing, the exact timing, not just instantaneous or delayed, will dramatically change the spacing. And more importantly, what we want to look at is not just how these variables change in, them, in and of themselves, but we want to look at how changes to these variables in relationship to all of the other variables of the blast affect the overall blast performance. And so this is where multivariate design begins to take over. It looks at the interdependency of variables to all the other variables and the performance outcomes of the blast. Meaning, if we change our row-to-row -row timing, that may require changes to stemming, spacing, burden, and a whole variety of other parameters there. And so we break this apart into a couple major features, including the performance of the blast, the blast's function. We can then control multiple different criteria and basically we make a list of all of the different controls we want and the processes we need to achieve. Now I'll mention some people in the past have incorrectly assumed that this approach relies on a multivariate analysis of variance which is a statistical technique and some have even tried to use this, uh, this multivariate analysis of variance before in blast design. However, that doesn't work because blast design is site-specific. We can't necessarily correlate what's happening in a large copper mine in Arizona to what's happening in a construction project in Tennessee. It doesn't work like that. So the problem with this multivariate analysis of variance is the fact that when we utilize it, we can never get enough variance of all of the parameters from a single site necessarily to define true and large relationships because we need large data sets and essentially then we ignore all of the effects of geology, we ignore operator uh, functionality, we ignore the drilling, we ignore all of the site-specific variables that you cannot replicate. And so that methodology doesn't really work because from a single site we can't get enough data to make those correlations. Whereas from uh, you know multiple sites we're ignoring the site-specific nature of it. And so what we've done is we've developed an approach under this multivariate blast design called n-factor blast design. And with that, we can take into account all of the site-specific results. And we can take into account what's occurring on the site and generate enough data to give us realistic answers by setting certain variables uh, in an interdependency of one another. And I'll give you some examples of this. There was a project we were working on over in the Middle East with it. And we spent multiple weeks on the site using this design methodology. Now, when we got to the site, they had about 10% of their overall product was considered oversize. And they had to further break that down to fit into their primary crusher. With this methodology, by the time we left, we had them to less than 1% total oversize. We took them from a violence factor of 4 to a violence factor of 1. And so these are major results that typically require 
major changes to the blast design, let's say in powder factor or in drill or explosive diameter, explosive type, new detonators. But at this site, we weren't allowed to do any of that. We had to stick with the exact same powder factor, the exact same drill size, the exact same explosives, the exact same initiation systems. And with this approach, we could key in on specific interdependency of multiple variables, including burden, spacing, timing, stemming. And with that, we could manipulate these variables to get a truly optimized blast design. We can take a look at another project uh, in the North America. Now, in this project, we were looking at blasting millions of pounds of explosives right next to critical structures in large-scale uh, mine blasts. And the whole key was to minimize flyrock to see if this was even possible because small blasts would not have been an effective approach. So could we safely detonate a blast that had 800,000 or a million pounds of emulsion in it within you know, hundreds of feet of protected structures where normally their radius uh, to clear was several thousand feet. And using this multivariate design approach, we again looked at the inter interdependency of these variables, established the proper limits, and it resulted in the overall fly rock uh, radius there going to within less than 100 feet. So extremely controlled blasting with over 800,000 pounds of emulsion fired in a single blast. That's truly uh, critical procedures that we're trying to define here. And, and we've been working on this for about the last five years and have uh, now finalized this design approach and seen that it's probably one of the most effective, if not the most effective design approach ever developed. And so when we're looking to the future of blasting, it's likely going to revolve around this multivariate design approach. Currently, this is being done with lots of engineers or site-specific testing that can take anywhere from a week to a month on site, uh, looking at multiple different blasts and keying in certain parameters. But eventually what this is going to center on is it's going to center on artificial intelligence systems. And so the future of blast design is going to be combining this multivariate blast design approach with artificial intelligence systems. And these will be employed on a site-specific basis, and every single blast will be monitored. We'll pull all the data in that we get from the drones, from the borehole logging, from the explosive logging, from the control systems. We'll pull that data in, and we'll also pull in our fragmentation data, our heave data, our ground vibration, air overpressure. And we'll have an artificial intelligence system that's monitoring all of those different variables, and then making small tweaks each and every blast to the actual blast design. It'll then go and take in this data again and recommend more small tweaks. And eventually what this will lead to is over some time period, each site will be able to develop optimized patterns for each rock type, each blast orientation, in order to minimize cost or increase performance. And now we're looking at the first true mine-to-mill optimization sequence where every single blast pattern in a mine site for each site-specific scenario can then be optimized to achieve the proper performance required from the blast. I think that's where the future of blast design is heading with artificial intelligence systems using these complex design approaches to really get site-specific basis. And we can then use this for ground vibration, for air overpressure, for fragmentation, for uh, heave, for any of these different parameters like fly rock that we want 
to really control blasts and ensure that the explosive is performing how we want it to on a day-by-day basis. Thank you for listening to academyblasting.tv. It's been a pleasure to have you along, and if this is the first time you're listening to this episode or an episode of academyblasting.tv, please make sure to subscribe to us on all of your major podcasting platforms that you use uh, to ensure that you get each and every episode as it is released. If you're not familiar or not using normal podcasting platforms, then head to academyblasting.tv. It's our website that hosts this podcast and all explosives engineering media that is aimed at giving free educational services to the industry. If you have any friends that may be interested, please share this episode with them and make sure you leave us comments and feedback on what you think or recommendations for future episodes. Thank you for sticking along, and this is Dr. Anthony Konya signing off.